All right, open up to question seven, if you would. A choir is bolting at 10. Actually, other than you, Maggie and Aaron, does anybody? You may not lose that many people. Huh, maybe they decided just not to come. But they're going to miss a fun week when we talk about election. So there's that. All right. Number seven. Let's read it together. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. Gosh, people hate this. Um, all right, the old-time sermon illustration is as follows. Cornelius Winter was once in company with an Arminian, Arminian is someone who emphasizes human free will over divine sovereignty, if you didn't know, with an Arminian who spoke violently against the doctrine of election. You believe election, said Winter, as firmly as I do. I deny it, answered the other. On the contrary, it is a doctrine I detest. Do you believe that all men will be saved on the last day, or some only? Only some. Do you imagine that those some will be found to have saved themselves? No, certainly God in Christ is the only savior of sinners. But God could have saved the rest, could he not? No doubt. Then salvation is peculiar to the saved? To be sure. And God saves them designedly and not against his will? Certainly. And willingly suffers the rest to perish, though he could have hindered it? It should seem so. Then is this not election? It amounts to the same thing. So, what we find, I think, when we talk about this long enough is that everyone's kind of saying the same thing from different directions and some are just looking at it from the bottom up and some are more high-minded and spiritual and looking at it from the top down um <laughs> so what, what do we mean here when it says that uh the decrees of god are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will well nobody he doesn't confer with anybody else well maybe the counsel of the son and the holy spirit well, the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. You weren't here last week, but we've covered this thing called the Trinity. It was sweet. Um, so God, the triune God, uh, you're saying perhaps within the Godhead, there's uh, like, what do you think of this? Well, maybe not. Uh, but God himself takes counsel with no one. And so the counsel of his own will, uh, if we had, I should have kept that thing. I don't know why I erased it. The... Uh, three incommunicable attributes of God, and then the seven attributes of God underneath it, God's will and God's counsel is in his eternity and wisdom and immutability, meaning unchangeability. Uh, let's look up some passages. Somebody look up Proverbs 29, I'm sorry, Proverbs 19, 21. Someone else, Psalm 33, 11, and someone else, Mark 13, 31. I'll give you just a minute. I love the sound of the onion skin pages turning. Uh, who's got Proverbs 19.21? Oh, let's hear it. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Okay. Are the ES is that the ESV? You better believe it. <laughs> NIV says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And uh, the idea of mind and heart are not a dichotomy. Of course, in the Old Testament thought, they're uh, more or less synonymous, or at least very much overlapping. So we've got all these plans. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm going to accomplish all these things. And often, you know, you almost can hear God laughing. No, it is his purpose that, that prevails, that stands. Uh, Psalm 33:11. it says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations. So this language of counsel of the Lord is uh, biblical, coming from a number of passages, but that's one of them. Stands forever. So it, it is eternal. God's will, his counsel is unchangeable, and it is effectual, meaning what God determines to do, God does. It, uh, like, I would like to lose some weight, I like to do it before the new year because I don't want to feel like all these other people who are doing it because it's the new year. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I don't know. My plans are just plans. 
but God's plans are effectual. So uh, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Uh, and of course, I think that factors in when we start talking about salvation and people wanted to frame it in terms of a decision for the Lord or a commitment to the Lord. I've made a decision and a commitment to try and lose some weight before the end of the year. My decisions slash commitments are worth very little because I often don't follow through or I follow through for a time and I fall away. What we want to be focused on rather is God's will, his counsel, which is eternal, the plans of his heart, which are to all generations. And did anyone get to Mark 13, 31? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass. Heaven and earth will pass away. Everything will pass away, but not God's words. How do we then, if, if this is the, the biblical view of God, how do we reconcile that with, for example, someone saying, um, you know, if you're living in just wickedness or uh, nonstop drunkenness or, or some kind of sin, we say, you know, God doesn't want this for you. And could they not respond with, well, according to the catechism, it says, uh, for his glory, he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. So obviously God does want this for me. Does that seem like a contradiction? No. Why not, Roger? Whether you're talking about sovereign will or his moral will. Oh, okay. So you're saying that when we talk about God's will, there's actually two different things? Because we have sovereign will, what he allows to happen. We have his moral will, what he wants to happen. Okay. Sovereign will, often called permissive will. Uh, the idea that an omnipotent God, by simply permitting something, is decreeing it because... If you're omnipotent and all-knowing, then anything that happens only happens because you created, you sustain, etc., uh, etc. Et um, and I mean, there's a, my favorite book about death and sin. Wow, that makes me sound bleak. Uh, it's a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be uh, by Plantinga. And it's about how, you know, it talks about the way we tend to view funerals as, well, you know, this is... A good time to celebrate and be happy and not a good time to cry and weep and be sad. This is, uh, you know, just natural. Everyone dies and et cetera, et cetera. When scripture tells us this is absolutely not the way it's supposed to be, uh, whether the person was 16 or 96, that, that death and sin and suffering are all apart from God's moral will. And so we can look at this uh, I wish I could write, but I can say it just as well. I just don't know why I want to write it. Um, we can look at this in terms of, I mean, the, the same thing uh, might be done on a very, very small micro level with, with our own children, right? Um, if, if my kid says he's going to go and jump off the roof because he thinks he can fly, and I believe him, I'm going to stop him. But if he says, you know, again and again, I want to eat a spoonful of wasabi because I think it's going to be delicious, and I go, no, you don't. <laughs> You don't want that wasabi. And finally, I say, all right, give it a shot. And then I get out my cell phone to film it because it's going to be funny. Um, my will isn't for him to hurt himself, but I've permitted it. I, I could have stopped it. And so if he then says, I'm going to go up on the roof and jump off, and I permit it, I'm negligent and I'm culpable, right? Because I could have stopped it. Um, and so there's different kinds of, and we, so we recognize this within humans. We recognize this on every level, that, that our wills are not... Uh, of one type that there is uh, and, and it complicates things naturally when someone is all-powerful uh, and and sovereign yeah Roger the two examples that I always use is Joseph from the Old Testament because God I'm pretty sure God did not want his brothers to sell him into slavery and get accused of adultery mm -hmm. and get thrown in prison for something he didn't do but God used that and Jesus of course mm -hmm. do you see God's moral and sovereign will in Jesus's Okay, yeah, so what you see in both those examples is God's, uh, in his salvific acts, using something that he permitted someone to do that was sinful. Yeah, sure. Uh, but in this case, we're looking, draw, uh, zooming in particularly on um, I, the idea of election, because this is where we're going uh, as we go to the next uh, question and the one after that. Um, someone look up for me Ephesians 1.4. I think it might have been uh, Moody who said election is 
that God has cast one ballot for your soul and Satan has cast the other and you cast the deciding vote and that determines who wins the election. Uh, but that's not what we mean in, <laughs> when we're in the uh, Baptist confession or the Baptist catechism and we talk about election. Uh, we're talking about uh, God's foreordaining uh, what comes to pass for his glory. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4. Let's hear it. Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So we're not seeing, when we look at salvation, a situation where God waits and says, okay, yeah, you deserve it, and grants it to us. We're seeing a situation in which before the foundation of the world, before the creation of anything, God chose us, and in love he predestined us. That's what Scripture says. I mean, I, I don't want to uh, push a particular um, peculiar viewpoint, uh, but A, this is just reading the scripture, and B, this is what the particular Baptists, which is where we come from, have always taught and believed in particular uh, redemption. Uh, there's a great book, by the way, on this, if you are interested in it. If you hear that and go, that seems weird, that seems like I see why, but I also see the other side of it, like it seems like God's playing chess and we are automatons and, and that sort of thing. There's a book called By His Grace and For His Glory. It's about kind of the, the development of this doctrine in uh, Baptist circles from the very beginning. Uh, and there's a number of other resources that, that uh, ultimately, like the Trinity, this is something we can't, we can't fully reconcile. Uh, we can say we believe that people are culpable for their sin. We know that's the case. Um, we can say that we have in nature uh, general revelation, the, the world around us. We have enough revealed about God to know that he's eternal and divine and good, enough to leave us without excuse. And that without special revelation, because sin is in the mix, and our minds are, are actually affected by it, uh, and we've become depraved by it, that, that we need special revelation, God to break in to save us, that we're not going to just stumble upon him. Uh, it's not going to happen. We're going to continually worship ourselves, worship uh, the created thing, rather than the God who created. Uh, let me just read a couple verses here. Jot them down if you're taking notes. First, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. 1 Corinthians, whatever you call it. Uh, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, even the wisdom that hath been hidden, which God foreordained before the worlds unto our glory. Second Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. And these are things that Paul rarely even builds a case for. He kind of just assumes. That's, that's in the midst of telling people we've been praying for you. And he just drops it in as kind of an aside. Uh, so when we're talking about salvation, we're talking about uh, the, the, the main debate would be, is this conditional or unconditional? Is it, is it something that's, that's conditional love and grace and mercy, at which point, if I have to do something to get God's grace, it's no longer grace because it's no longer unmerited. Or is it unconditional? Is it, here's a word for you, monergistic, which means a work of God alone, rather than synergistic, you know, synergy, us working together. Um, you know, we, we get one of those things that's always advertised on my Facebook feed, where you get your team together and break up all the tasks and, all right, I'll do this, you do that, and before you know it, I'll be saved. Uh, it, it's not, in the scriptures, synergistic. Uh, our, our salvation is, is God's doing. Uh, so there's no conditions beside one, which is God's pleasure, God's will. Uh, so if you look at Ephesians 1, 11 to 12, can someone find that quickly? I have it. All right. Also, we have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him 
who worketh all things at, after the counsel of his own will. And there's that phrase, according to the counsel of his own will. We're chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So if you serve someone greater than yourself, for example, we serve Jesus and we submit, subordinate everything we do to his will. But God does things according to the counsel of his own will. That's non-conditional, unconditional. Uh, and, and if we look at some of these, again, getting into the really nerdy stuff, the catechisms on the catechisms. By the way, my goal is someday to write a catechism on the catechism on the catechism. But uh, one of them in, in the 13th question, sub-question of this question, it asks, what is the absurdity of conditional decrees? Meaning if you're God and you say, well, if this happens, I guess I'll do this. My hands are tied. What is the absurdity of that? And the answer is, they make the will of God, which is the first cause, to depend upon the will of the creature. And they plainly suppose that either God is ignorant of the event or incapable to accomplish it, or that he has determined nothing certainly about it, all which are blasphemously absurd. Uh, I think ultimately two real problems uh, arise from this, and they're the kind of thing that have been debated and discussed and so much ink has been spilled on them. We can't probably sew them all up in the next 12 minutes. Um, but it's good stuff to start thinking about, wrestling with, etc. Does God's eternal decree do violence to the will of man? So by this we mean if God de decrees from eternity past, does that mean, I guess, A, I'm off the hook, and B, I don't really have a choice. I'm just kind of floating along. If God is sovereign, does that make us no longer free to do anything? What, what do you think of that question? No. Why not? Because um, in, in the sermon he gave on, Peter gave on Pentecost, he said it was um, by the evil works of men that Jesus was put to the cross. Plus, um, Jesus said it would be have been better for Judas not to have been born at all. Because he chose to hand over the... Okay, so you're saying that in the scripture, um, there's culpability for sin ascribed. Okay, but I mean, the, the people who uh, want to take the other side of this uh, equation and say God's sovereignty does not predetermine uh, everything are going to also go to those same scriptures and might say, you see... If God is sovereign and his decree is eternal, then it would do violence to the will of man. Therefore, we see that God's will is more of a kind of open, uh, you know, go, along, go on with the flow, wait and see what happens kind of a situation. Well, in that same passage, doesn't Peter say it was by the will of God that it happened? So the will of God and the will of man are not on equal footing, but they're not incompatible, is what you're saying. That sounds like another one of those theological tensions that people continually want to uh, alleviate by going to one side or the other or splitting the difference. Yeah, very good, Roger. Your other example of Joseph's brothers, I think, does the same thing, right? The idea that uh, the he didn't say, it's okay, guys. It was all for the best. He's like, no, I messed with you for a long time and made you feel terrible because what you did was terrible, but God used it for good. Uh, and, and so we have in the, in the same breath a discussion of people having a will and God's will being infinitely greater and, and actually eternal and in every way effectual. I really wish I had remembered to bring in my copy of the Westminster Catechism. I thought I had left it under here because reading uh, 3, uh, section 1 would be great right now. Um, I will insert it in the, uh, when we put it on the web. And here I am, breaking in with chapter 3, section 1 of God's eternal decree uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
Uh, it's almost identical to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, but I think there's a little bit of uh, kind of awkward wording in the uh, in the London Baptist Confession, uh, where the sentence is like nine miles long, and you have to kind of do some grammatical calculus to figure out where the verb is and stuff. So I'm just going to read uh, this a little bit more straightforward one from the Westminster, and it says this. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of creatures, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And if that's not a succinct summary of what we're talking about, I don't know what is. Back to the class. But how about Matthew 17, 12, Acts 2, 23? A couple of these are going to be, or one of these is going to be familiar here. Anyone had that one, Matthew 17, 12? Let's hear it. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So we have... I don't think that's the best. I don't think that's the best proof text, but it's the one that was in the uh, the uh, copy of the catechism that we're using. How does that? The idea that they could do whatever they please to somebody mm-hmm. means you have whatever they please a will that okay. can be enacted. I mean, almost everything that happens from the beginning of the scriptures implies that we have a will. Yeah, and it's usually turned against God's will. And continually, well, yeah. The, Look at judges. Yeah, look at the whole Bible. <laughs> uh, continually, God is calling people, uh, you know, Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. Make, make the choice. Do, you know, do, use, your, use your will. Um, what about Acts 2.23? Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So that's that Pentecost sermon that Roger was talking about. But what, what kind of uh, will of God is described here? Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. So determined, meaning not just sort of laissez-faire, let's see what happens, and with foreknowledge. Uh, and, and oftentimes foreknowledge becomes the escape hatch for somebody who wants to alleviate this tension by going to the human free will side. Well, God looked down the corridors of time, and he was like, oh, all other things being equal, Steve's going to follow me, so I choose him. This is basically like every marriage when it's time to go out to eat, right? Everyone's just deferring to, I don't care, wherever you want, no, where you want to go. All right, I'll go wherever you want to go. And, and we, it's just back and forth. We're all submitting to each other. God's over here going, well, whatever you want. Well, no, whatever you decree. No, but whatever you, um, but that's not the picture in the scriptures at all. God being uh, eternal and sovereign and omnipotent. So the idea that God's eternal decree and man's will are not contradictory. They're compatible. This is called compatibilism. That, that if I choose to follow him, it's because he first chose me, but I've still chosen him. It's, it's not that... you know. Who wants to be in love with a robot? I keep reading about this in the, the news, just part of how depressing the world has become. You program them, and they love you, so it means nothing. But people will say, well, this is what God's doing. If you're right, if your catechism's right, if your historic Baptist doctrine is right, God's just like, you are going to love me because I've said from beforehand. Well, if God is sovereign, nothing can happen without it being in line with his will. But that doesn't mean, God is powerful, and it doesn't mean that our actions are incompatible. Our having a will is incompatible with God having decreed it. Uh, And in fact, I would say that the proof of that we find in Acts 2.23 and elsewhere. These guys did this thing to this man, and it was wicked. And they are culpable for it because they chose to do it. And God, (laughs) from eternity past, had chosen that they would do this and it would be the uh, way that he would save the world. Steve? I was thinking about this, like, because he's eternal. And it even says here, you know, and the answer is eternal purpose. But we, and it seems like all the created things we know about live in time. Angels and the humans and everything else. Mm -hmm. So how we see things is a cause and effect. 
right? Yeah. Right. Well, we have this free will that we observe and we live in. There's no whether we have the agency to make choices or not. We still have to act that way because we live in time. Mm -hmm. He lives outside yeah. of time. Yeah, so we're stuck in this linear kind of plane, right. and God is outside of it, where it's like, so it's the difference between my monitor on my computer in my office and Tony Stark's like spinning things around with holograms. Um, you didn't say that because apparently I'm more of a nerd than anyone, but is that kind of what you're saying? Like the, yeah. the understanding of it's on a different plane. It's on a it's like to even make a decision, you have to have one thing happen and you decide the next thing you'd like to happen and that's in time. Mm -hmm. Cause and effect. So yeah, I think that he's on something. And God with his kind of ultra deep chest sees yeah, infinity so moves ahead. He's looking forward in time. He doesn't need to do that. He's laid out a plan that to us looks like a course of events, but right. it's actually an eternal plan. Yeah. I want to have more discussion, but let's also real quickly, the second problem that arises from this is the idea that God is the author of sin. Uh, introduced by Satan in the garden, Sean here a few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> no, it becomes, this becomes basically the, the conundrum that everybody who reads the scriptures, you got to wrestle with it. If it's you what don't... What's the Pope's talking about? What's that? That's what the Pope's talking about lately. Really? He's wanting to change the Lord's Prayer because people don't... Oh. I don't know. Oh, like, it's a good change, actually, the, the Lord's yeah. Prayer. But um, yeah, okay. I follow the Pope on Twitter, but uh, I haven't... Um, so here's, here's Fisher's Catechism, which is a catechism called the Shorter Catechism Explained. Heard you like catechism, so I put a catechism in your catechism. Is God the author of sin is the question. And you guys can listen to the rest of this on the website if you want, because it's going to get really heated. Someone's going to throw something at someone else, I predict. And my, and my will and, and foreknowledge is effectual, because I'm actually going to be the one who does it. Um, is God the author of sin? He can never be the author of that of which he is the avenger. So if God avenges sin, he cannot be the author of sin. A, it would make him unjust. B, it would make him self-destructive. Uh, now, there is, and again, the theological tension, the act of God pouring out, the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son because the Son has taken the sin of the world on his shoulders. Uh, but this is him taking sin from outside of himself. If, if God was the author of sin, then when Christ died on the cross, he would just be paying for the thing that he had introduced. Uh, and this, again, gets very difficult to wrap our minds around. I think it's not something we fully can because we exist in that kind of linear uh, ABC syllogistic world. But um, I like to talk about how there are different types of causes. I'm not making a metaphor here. I'm just making a point. There are different types of causes that we already acknowledge. There's a story in the Bible where Abimelech is coming through. He's just knocking everything down, just making everybody bow to his... Uh, Abimelech's a, a jerk. He's Gideon's son. He's a bad guy. Uh, he's making everyone bow to his will. And he comes through, and he, and, and he doesn't like the reception he gets from a certain town. He's like, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to destroy this. I'm going to knock this tower down. You're all going to die. So when he comes back, he's making siege. And does anyone remember what happens here? A woman drops a millstone on him. Right. There's a, there's, so there's all these soldiers, and they're all cowering. And this woman is like, help me with this upper millstone, which is an enormous round stone for, for breaking down uh, wheat. And, and she drops it, and it lands on him. And, then he, and he, he falls down, and he's kind of like dying and contorting there on the ground. And he says with his final breath to his armor bearer, I can't bear the thought of people saying, a woman killed Abimelech, so will you kill me? And the guy was like, sure, and killed him. And that's the story of Abimelech, and that's what happens when you, when you chase glory. Um, so the question is, what killed Abimelech? And my point is, in saying that there's different sorts of causes, you could say the woman that dropped the stone killed him, right? You, she'd probably be found, if that was illegal, uh, in, in the Old Testament Wild West, that she'd probably be found guilty. Um, you could say, well, no, the stone did. Or better yet, the like terminal velocity of, you know, the, the, that it reached falling and gravity killed him. Or you could get really scientific and say, no, 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 it was a hemorrhage of the whatever, whatever. Or, no, 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 actually, it was his armor bearer that killed him, right? 
Or we might say, and no one could really argue, it was his own avarice and bloodlust and, and rage that killed him. There are so many ways we can answer this question. There are so many different types of causes, and yet we don't see them necessarily as being contradictory to each other. You're not going to hear people arguing, no, 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 the stone killed him. No, 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 gravity killed him, unless you are dealing with the kind of people you want to spend zero minutes with. Am I right? So th th this is something that we acknowledge. Another example would be, um, and, and again, I'm not making a metaphor, but uh, if you've ever, I mean, you read Shakespeare in high school, right? There's, um, in Romeo and Juliet, sword fight starts, right? And Mercutio is, is uh, accidentally stabbed and killed, but kind of on purpose, right? And he dies shouting a pox on both your houses and, and all this stuff. Um, only it's not a pox. It's something else, and it became a pox. It's a curse. It's a plague. It's a curse. I don't know. So um, what, what killed him? I mean, you could say it was a sword thrust, and that's what killed him. You could say it was this long series of events that started whatever started the, the Montague, Capulet, East Coast, West Coast, you know, feud that's been going on for so long. Ultimately, though, nobody killed him because it's a fictional character. So could you charge Shakespeare with the murder of, you know, Polonius or Tybalt or any of the characters that he kills? No, because it's a different type of cause. He's the author of the book. He's not the author of uh, a crime that takes place. And, and I'm not saying that God is the Shakespeare and we're just a story he's writing. I'm saying that we all acknowledge there are different types of causes and there are so many that if we started trying to list them out and map them out, uh, we'd probably get bored before we got done. And, and this is the ultimate cause, the first cause, the greatest um, will. And yet we, if we believe the scriptures, he's not the author of evil. He's the avenger of evil. I have a question about this. How, how does Satan being the prince of this world fit into this? Mm -hmm. Is that a level of control or, or given? Like, when Satan's called the god of this world, it seems to me that it's just acknowledging the reality. That right now, this world, and of course, we mean ethically, not ontologically. Meaning, we mean the, the type of uh, values that this world embraces. Just like when we say flesh, we mean ethically, not having bones and skin and blood. That, that this world simply follow, falls in line with and worships at the feet of... Satan, uh, that, that we've chosen him as our leader, that the world system, I mean, turn on the TV. It's, it's clear, you know, we've got people fleeing war and being killed. We've got, I mean, just, it's, it's horrendous. And so, yeah, Satan is the God of this world, but the kingdom of God spreading to the ends of the world, we see a redemption taking place. Uh, so when Jesus' uh, ministry begins, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, right? As his kingdom expands, Satan is cast down. Read in uh, Revelation 19, Revelation 21 through 6, Satan uh, cast down and, and bound by the work of Christ. So he's the God of this world in the sense that uh, he is the de facto default leader uh, of this world. And yet Christ came, this is kind of the basis of my sermon I'm writing for uh, uh, Christmas Eve, Christ came to, to steal that back. You know, Bart calls the baby Jesus a stealthy intruder slipping under the radar of the devil to come and take back what is his. Right. Was Satan telling the truth when he told Jesus I would give you all the kingdoms? Could Satan have given him all the kingdoms? I guess he could have ceded his claim to them. I don't know. I'm sure there's some kind of trick and there he is, Satan. Sean, you're being awfully quiet over there. You've got to have an objection here because I have a thousand of them. Oh, yeah, I do. I, I don't even know how to... I mean, I'm going back to synergy, and I, I think we have a part in our own salvation and the fact that we have to accept it. You see, yeah, so that's, that's what's called Arminianism. Um, and and if we don't accept it, we don't get it. Okay, and based on what do you accept it? Where do you find that? The, the, what, what separates Bob here who accepts it and Jim who doesn't? 
Faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, and where does that come from? <laughs> it comes from God because he chose us, but we still have to do it. Okay, we have, Okay, so, but what you're saying is, ultimately, then, the author of their salvation, it's not that Bob has a better heart and he looks deep into the cockles of his heart and is like, oh, there is faith in there under all the broken laws and sin and, and avarice and lust and dusts it off and turns it in. You're like, you know, bringing all the tickets up to the counter at Chuck E. Cheese and gets his salvation. You're saying that God is the author of his salvation and grants him faith like the scriptures say. Uh, you, uh, well, yeah, that is what the scriptures say. So, yes, but so uh, then we're back to... I have, I'm, I'm just picked and there's no choice. So this is where the idea of like regeneration comes in, especially to reform folk who already kind of buy into this. <clears throat> and the idea that uh, the spirit is already working to change and morph your heart before the act of say, uh, salvation really occurs, this blood price really occurs. Um, so I mean, I think that there's, uh, there's the, like you said in the beginning, there's a, there's a level of talking past each other because people are supposed to be on opposing sides. and you, It can't be fundamentally that we're kind of saying the same thing. You know, it has to be opposed. There has to be, you know, the butting of heads. But that's not necessarily true. Because, I mean, I don't think that any true Calvinist would say that the idea... This is the air quote, quote king this morning. Yeah. Salvation. <laughs> Calvinism. Um, no, but I don't think that, I don't think that, I mean, you know... True Calvinist would say that uh, the will doesn't have a place inside of salvation. It's just a fixed will, right? It's a it's a it's a will made new. It's a will that's actually uh, changed to see um, uh, to see God who for who He is, as opposed to previously when we when we uh, with our broken hearts and our and our broken wills, we don't want to see God how He is or with who he is. So, you know, like, I think that, I think that the Spirit works uh, a work in us to make us want to accept, accept salvation. Um, uh, so, so I think that, I think that both parts can have a, uh, a piece of the, a piece in the puzzle, but, but it's, it's who pulls the trigger on that, right? And I think that, and I think that was God from the very, very beginning of time, from the covenant of regeneration, way, way, way. Well, yeah, if he elected us from eternity past, then he has to be the one lighting the fuse. But here's the thing. I want to make clear that both Arminianism, which is the side that it kind of emphasizes the, the free will of man, and Calvinism are within the umbrella of Orthodox Christianity. Neither is a heresy, some damnable error that puts you outside of the church, not even close. Because both of them are probably an incomplete view looking at, you know, one side of the elephant. Um, here, here's the way these things are described. Uh, in, in the Wesleyan understanding, uh, and, and you know the Wesleyan uh, movement Methodist. slash Methodism, um, by the way, one of my favorite people of all time in the church, one of my favorite saints to read is John Wesley, just an amazing guy. Um, and the hymns Charles Wesley wrote, just love them. Uh, he said there is this thing called prevenient grace, in which God comes in his grace your will is in bondage. That's clear from Scripture again and again and again, that the natural man is bound by sin. Romans 1, it tells us quite clearly that uh, we're shackled by our sin. And so everybody wants to know God. They're programmed to want to know God, but they, are, um, they will continually pervert and distort the knowledge even that they have to, uh, to see and and. It won't quite get them there until God in the Spirit moves. So the prevenient grace that, that you would hear about at a Methodist pulpit or a Wesleyan pulpit says that God kind of comes, sort of wakes us up a little, gives us a taste of the grace, and either we go, no, I don't want that, go away, at which point he withdraws, or we say, oh yes, this is what I've been waiting for, and grab onto it, at which point we're uh, raised to life, spiritually speaking. Um, the other side of the equation would say, no, that still puts uh, effective salvation in your hands, not God's, and it gives you some of the glory. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is, by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. So it's a gift, right? It's not, here you go, 
and let's see if you deserve it. It's here. And it actually breaks the chains and it, and it removes the sin that's binding your will uh, to the point where you are free now to accept it. So that's two different descriptions of the same thing. All you have to do is change. I don't, I don't, I don't want to come out as a guy who's not that hardcore of a Calvinist, but I guess it will. All you have to do is start changing the metaphor a little bit and the whole thing looks different, right? So when someone says, um, oh, if I had my whiteboard up here, you draw a circle and you put all these people in here, right? And you say, all right, how are these people saved? Uh, God has to reach into the pit, the, the slimy pit, right? The muck and the mire that we read about. The, the slimy pit is a biblical term. You can't climb out. You just slide back down. God has to reach in and take us out. So then the Arminian says, yes, but God reaches in and takes us out when we say, God, save me. Okay, but now that person gets some of the glory. And I say, hold on a minute. If I fall into a pit and I break my leg and, and there's a guy walking by and I say, hey, help me. And the guy at great danger to his own health and well-being somehow gets halfway down into the slimy pit and gets me and pulls me out and saves my life. And they have a, a ceremony where they put up one of those platforms and, and, and the mayor's there and he has a medal of valor and, and, and he puts it around his neck. I don't say, hold on, where's my medal? I, I said, hey, save me. I deserve some of the glory. And I mean, calling out for, for salvation to be helped is not a glorious act. It's an act of self-denial and recognizing that you have no glory and you have no merit of your own. So this is why I, you know, I used to, there's a thing that, that Calvinists talk about, especially I find Baptist Calvinists called the cage stage, which is when you first come to recognize that the doctrines of grace are clearly taught in the scriptures. And they are, that these people should be put in a cage for three or four years because they're going to try and like, A, convert everyone to their point of view very arrogantly. B, they're going to think that people who are very much pillars of the church are actually heretics and, you know, teaching falsehood. And they need to just be kind of muzzled and kept there until they kind of get over themselves for a while. And the further I think you get away from that uh, and the more perspective you get and the more you think about it, pray about it, meditate on it, talk about it, the more you start to realize we're dealing with something so complex that it has different sides to it. And, and I think ultimately, if you say, yes, I did call out, Jesus saved me from the bottom of the slimy pit. And someone's willing to say, well, yeah, even that faith that I exercise, even recognizing that I was at the end of myself and couldn't save myself, it all came ultimately from God and the Holy Spirit prompted me. I mean, we're all kind of acknowledging that it's God's eternal decree that is the ultimate thing, right? And, and as long as we can get on that page together, I really have a hard time with divisions in the church and you know, pointing fingers at each other and, and um, you know, accusing each other of, of twisting scripture and all that kind of thing. Hence my silence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's confusing and uh, I know who my Savior is and that's really all I need. And you know that you didn't do anything to get out of that pit. No. What you did was you held on to whatever slimy thing you could find at the bottom and God pulled you out and it all slipped out of your hands, right? It's, it's Jesus who goes after that lamb that runs away. And we keep running away. That's how lambs are. Like, it's like my chihuahua. We open the door this far, boom, out. And you literally have to out. And it's hard. They seem like they'd be slow because their legs are this long, but they're fast. And you got to outrun it. You got to wait till it gets tired. It never gets tired. Jesus is chasing after us. In our hard hearts and sin, we run from him. And, and it just as the picture of Paul kicking against the goads, meaning he's moving away, but also kind of kick like, stop coming after me. Like, like a Zahel in the Old Testament, chase someone else. And finally, we just completely are exhausted. We fall down. And that's when he picks up the lamb, puts it around his shoulders, goes back rejoicing, having saved the life of this thing that would have died in the, in the wasteland. Roger. What separates the Armenians from the Pelagians? Because the Pelagians believe in free will too, don't yeah. they? Uh, yeah, and, and so Pelagius uh, was an early church heretic who taught that we could find God from the goodness inside of us. 
and do enough good that God would be like, yeah, you're one of my guys and we'd be acceptable to him. That's, that is a heresy. It is, it is wickedness. And it's condemned actually in the New Testament, just not by that name. Um, and so there's a trick that people on the sovereign grace side will play by saying, you guys are semi-Pelagian, right? Semi-Pelagian. You're, you're just about there. Um, the difference is that the Pelagian doesn't see a need for a miracle, which the miracle is this person who has been uh, at enmity with God, getting a new heart and becoming a new creation. Rather, the Pelagian says, I'm good enough kind of now. I just have to really, you know, suck it up. And this is kind of the power of positive thinking, you know, Joel Osteen kind of just elbow grease and big smile. Uh, and that's salvation. Whereas a, an Arminian, I mean, that, we're talking about Billy Graham when we say an Arminian. We're talking about someone who says, you need Jesus and you have no hope apart from him. Jesus is the only way that this story ends well for you. And so, I mean, you, you think to yourself, well, nobody's going to accuse Billy Graham of being a heretic. Get on some Reformed Facebook groups. And you'll see some stuff. Um, don't do it. Don't, don't, don't do it. Alex one time made a, uh, a meme of the guy getting all suited up in the hazmat suit and pasted my face on the guy. And then at the end, he walks into a room and over the top, it says Reformed Facebook groups. After a conversation we had where I was trying to express that, that reality. Uh, yeah, stay, stay away from people in their cage stage. They're very, that's, that's why you keep wild animals in cages. You don't want to get hurt. A any other thoughts on this stuff? We're not going to be like, oh, oh, I get it. Easy. And, and we're going to get back to this when we talk about effectual call. When we talk, you know, this, we're not done discussing this. Um, but I think when we get to the question of how does God decree we have no choice but to bring it to a head with, with the discussion of salvation. It seems like the Bible's full of calls to action. Mm -hmm. Calls to repent and spread the gospel and sanctify. And these seem like things that are, you know, from one person communicated to another as, hey, make this choice. Mm -hmm. Seems like those are messages spread in this word. Well, we have two different categories of these. You have the ones that are for believers in the New Testament, like go and make disciples. Uh, like when someone comes to your door who's hungry and cold, you don't slam the door after saying, you know, be well and warm and well fed. You help them. You know, things like this. And these are for believers who have been made a new creation. And so ultimately... The understanding of the bondage of the will. Luther and Calvin both wrote books that start with the bondage, but uh, Calvin's is the bondage and liberation of the will. You know, the, our, our bill, our, the, the chains are broken by the, the cross, and now we ought to be able to follow him. The law has dragged us to the foot of the cross because we could not accomplish anything for our own salvation, and we have been saved. And now, in our sanctification, I would see, and we have had many discussions uh, about this in different contexts, but um, there is a sense of synergy in our sanctification. God says, you get to help me with this. We'll talk about it when we get to that, uh, that question. Um, you're not helping much, but it's good for you to help. Uh, and, and it's good for your relationship with dad to help him with stuff. And, and so there, there is that. The other, in the Old Testament, I mean, things like Elijah, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, serve him. If Yahweh is God, serve him. But make up your mind right now. And these, I mean, the, we're dealing with, and again, we'll get to covenant later too, but we're dealing with the context of a covenant of works. And part of what this thing does is it, you know, it, it points us toward our inability to do this. And so when you have half of Israel on Mount Gerizim, half on Mount Ebal, and you have, here's all the blessings for keeping the covenant, and they all say amen, and we say, here's all the curses for breaking the covenant, and they all say amen, and then all together, everyone says, everything that you said will do, that's happening, leading up to Messiah to show that our will is just completely, pathetically, savagely incapable of doing these things. That, that even our greatest good deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. 
And so to show us the need for Christ. In fact, Paul says that the, the law was there to increase transgressions, to show us how great our sin is so that we'd come to the end of ourself like the prodigal son and go back to dad and say, I got nothing. I'll be a servant here and find him there welcoming us as a son, you know, putting a robe around us, rings on our finger, and here's the fatted calf. So that, sh- that kind of shows it does exist. Your free will exists. Sure. It's to highlight. It's just, been, it's just been fractured by the fall. So in the garden, Adam and Eve are free in their will to do everything that God that would please God. They can, remember question one, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They can glorify God and they can enjoy him. He comes down in the cool of the evening and they, and they enjoy him and glorify him and everything because their wills are aligned. And at the fall, it's a four-act play, three plus one really, uh, at the fall, the shalom is fractured, the image of God in them is fractured, and their will is bound now by their sin. And that's what all these curses reference, you know, the thorns, the pain of childbirth, the, 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 all this. But then in the midst of that, there's the promise in Genesis 3.15 that I'm coming to redeem you. I'm going to break these chains and, and I'm going to save you. I think we're about out of time, but this is a conversation we'll continue quite a bit uh, as we go forward. Uh, next week, we'll look at question eight. How does God execute his decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. We can do a real Baptist pro- uh, topic, which is providence, which is all sorts of fun to talk about. Um, in fact, providence is so important to us. That's what we named our first settlement there in Rhode Island. Um, so it's the God using secondary causes to do what his primary goal is. Uh, and it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we know that we will never perfectly understand this stuff. And all of us who have spoken this morning have said something that's not quite right, not quite true, because our minds are finite. Lord, we thank you that you lead us along the way and teach us, and, and that, Lord, you condescend to come down and be with us and, and reveal yourself to us. And, and, Lord, we thank you that you... You are long-suffering, and and as we're slow to understand things, that you give us time. And Lord, we pray that we would not become proud in our understanding of these things, uh, and and scoff at people who understand them slightly differently. But but Lord, that we would know that uh, if we believe in our heart uh, and confess with our lips, that we will be saved, and that it will be the work of Jesus. And uh, we're, we're so thankful for that. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we listen to the cantata and open your word together, that, Lord, it would be uh, a time of, of our souls being fed and, and us finding rest in you, and that we would leave this place saying it was good to have been in the house of the Lord. In your holy name we pray. Amen.